Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all again. Uh, like Melissa said, this is our last week in our uh, Ruth series. So we're going to kind of um, break this down a little bit, uh, recap somewhat, but to illustrate the theme of what's going on here, I wanted to tell you all a little bit about um, my family's farm. It became our farm, and I say our farm, um, on my mother's side, it came into the family in 1886. So it has been farmed by a member of our family since 1886. But something happened uh, several years ago. Um, my my grandparents died, and my family bought it. My mom and my dad bought it, uh, and they had to buy basically the the shares of the inheritance of her siblings. They also had to purchase those. But so here's here's kind of what happened. My grandfather died. My grandmother was not able to totally take care of the farm on her own. Now, since I was a kid, we had been going out there and helping out, hauling hay. Um, this was not just like a, a family transaction. This was a place of deep, sentimental, and emotional value uh, for me and for my family. I remember going down to the creek, skipping rocks, um, falling in a few times, uh, you know, helping out in, in the barn, helping out in the fields. That's where I first started learning how to drive a stick shift. Um, that's where I drove way underage to uh, go, you know, go through the fields. Before I could pick up a hay bale, I would drive the truck uh, so they could throw hay. Um, like this was, oh, and then of course, like there's toast at Grandma's house. It was really like white bread and pomegranate jelly that she had made. So it was very, very um, ordinary, but it tasted so much better at her house than anywhere else. So uh, this was a, a deep, deep place for me. It was a deep place for my family. It was important that it stayed in our family because we lived about 10 minutes away, but everyone else lived further away, probably too far to come in and keep taking care of the land. So when it became for sale, um, my, it was important enough to my parents and our family that we purchased that from her siblings so it could stay in, in, our, uh, in our family. And now I watch my kids enjoy this property and go out there and, um, and laugh at the cows and the dogs and you know, everything else. So, but this is what is happening essentially, I mean, at, at a very basic level here in ancient Israel, that the cultural customs change, the legalities change. There's a lot of gaps that we might say, wait, wait a minute, did that, did that guy just say, he bought a wife with the property, like, it's like a buy one, get one free. Did he just take off his sandal and hand it? Uh, there's a lot of weird stuff in here that we can kind of, uh, like, we can miss the, the overarching point, and we can get lost deep in the study of ancient cultural practices of Israel, and, and those are worth studying. However, for our purposes here, we'll do kind of more of a cursory glance of what's, of what's going on, because this is a reflection of the story of Christ. Once we were rejected people, just like this property was rejected, just like Ruth and Naomi were rejected, we were rejected people. He redeemed us. He bought us back when we had no ability to, to buy ourselves out of the situation we were in. He redeemed us, and he restored us. So this is what we see reflected in the story of Ruth and Boaz. Throughout this series, we've been exploring this theme every week that Jesus turns our 
the end into part of his glorious unfolding story. Every week we've faced a situation where we've looked at Ruth and Naomi and said, oh, well, it was a good run. That should be the end of it. And then God makes this obscure way forward. And he keeps on pushing this family and restoring them slowly but surely. And we see this play out in Jesus' story of us. But Ruth and Boaz, we look at this story to tell our story because this is a living history of the gospel. Okay, this book is a living history of the gospel, and it's rich, and it's deep, and it is worth giving at least a, a brief recap of what's going on here. Elimelech had gotten so poor under the, um, under the conditions of a famine that he had to abandon his property. He took his family and moved to Moab. He left the land, which means he could not make a living off of it. Now, he had two options at that point. He could have left the land and gone to more favorable conditions, um, which, you know, we learned kind of behind the scenes is a little bit uh, frowned upon to abandon your promised land, right? Uh, to abandon your promised land and go somewhere else. His other option, though, that the law of God made provision for was to sell himself into slavery for at, for at most six years and then the seventh year be set free and given the opportunity to redeem back his property to, to the one who could take care of it better than he could. Okay? Now, we learn from Jeremiah 34 uh, and from Elimelech's practices that Israel was probably not to be trusted in this practice. They would not free those people on that seventh year. People who had sold themselves into slavery, they would not, their, their own brothers would not free them. They would keep the property and they would be condemned for that. So rather than trust himself to his own countrymen, Elimelech left his property, moved to Moab, and he died there. Not just him, but his two sons, the heirs, died. And they left two widows. They left three widows. One of them returned to Moab, and the other two went back to Israel when it got a little bit better to do so. But when they went back, Naomi, as a widow, had no claim, had no claim on this property. So she and Ruth are forced to scavenge. This property, having been left untended for 10 years, um, did not have any crops that they could live on. They were forced to scavenge there. And the word that the book of Ruth uses to explain this next part when Ruth goes out to scavenge to glean on the edges of people's fields and she's looking for someone who won't assault her. She's looking for someone who will let her actually be there. It says, by chance, she chanced upon. By the most extreme stroke of luck, she chanced upon Boaz's field, who was not only generous and not only provided more than they could need, but he was their kinsman redeemer. We haven't really talked so much about what that means. Um, and there, it means a variety of things, but for our purposes this morning, there are two things that, that we want to focus on. First, it was the job of the kinsman redeemer to keep a family's property in that clan so it would not leave the family, to extend the legacy. See, in ancient times, when God brought his people into Israel and gave them a promised land, it wasn't like, well, you know, actually down the block, there's another property for sale that would be better for our family, you know, bigger house, bigger lot. No, it was your property was your property. It wasn't 
It wasn't like you could just keep moving and, and tracking whatever you wanted to buy. This was a piece of property given to you by God to settle, to, to, uh, to, to grow your family on. This was your property. It was a promise. It was a promise given to you. It was to be treasured. So the, it was the job of the kinsman redeemer to keep that in your family line. Second, it was the job of the kinsman redeemer to buy back the freedom of any family who had to sell themselves into slavery. Okay, It was his job. When they got so poor that they had to sell themselves to keep their property going, to keep them in the family with the hope of maybe it being returned to them someday or being of the, of the station where they could buy it back someday, it was the job of the kinsman redeemer to purchase their freedom again. All right, Now, that puts a lot on the shoulders of guys who are in higher stations. It puts a lot on their shoulders to say, you can either keep improving your status or you can lose a lot of what you had gained for the sake of this family. That puts a lot of responsibility on their family, on that person. So you can probably understand that not many people actually fulfilled that obligation of kinsman redeemer. It became more of an option than an obligation. But Boaz, by chance, whom Ruth had chanced upon, he redeems. He wants to redeem this property. Not just the property, but Naomi. Ruth, the legacy of Elimelech. He wants to redeem this, this line. So last week we hit a snag. I will redeem it, he says. I will do it. I want to see you um, restored. But there's somebody in line in front of me. There's another redeemer who has first rise to this property. And he says, I will settle this today. So what you just saw in, in our reading was... Boaz going to this guy who had the first rights of refusal. He meets them at the gate. He essentially starts like this, this trial right there. He gets the elders of the city involved. He gets, it's a whole legal process. And, and he says, will you redeem this? If you won't, I will. And the guy says, no, I'll definitely, I'll take it. I'll, I'll take the land. I, I will redeem the land. And Boaz says, great. By the way, just so you know, with the land and with Naomi also comes Ruth, the Moabite. He says, actually, you know what? Um, I might not be able to redeem this after all. Yeah, it uh, might not be the best option for me financially. Um, so all of a sudden, like when Ruth gets thrown in the mix, he starts changing his tune, and we're not exactly sure why. I mean, it could have been like he finds out, well, yeah, I can't, I can support one widow, I can't support two. It could be the fact that, like, well, Ruth is young enough, and this is what Boaz was saying, that Ruth is young enough to actually continue the line of Elimelech. You would be morally obligated to father a child with her to continue his family line, in which case that land would then go to that heir, not, not this new redeemer's line. It would go back to Elimelech's line. He would, he would lose a lot in this deal. In other words, it wouldn't be best for him, or it could have been the fact that Ruth was a Moabite. This would be a blotch on his pure Israelite family line. Could have just said, this is, this is more than I'm willing to take. Either way, what you have contrasting here is a redeemer who wants to do what's best for him and a redeemer who uh, it all points up to this story 
sacrifices what is good for him and his riches and his um, and you know his station time after time after time saying, no, I want to do what's best for Ruth. I want to do what's best for Naomi. I want to do what's best for others. You have two different redeemers being contrasted here. So the land goes back to Naomi. Boaz takes it, and her life, her life is restored. It says, this is especially notable because Naomi didn't have any more sons. That was, that was one of the major tragedies. She had, she had no more sons to carry this out. So the fact that her friends and the people of the village said, blessed be Ruth, who is worth more than seven sons to you, is extremely notable. That This honor gets bestowed on Ruth, not the sons. Ruth, once on the fringes of society, now gets included in the lineage, not only of Israel's greatest king, David, but Israel's eternal king. Jesus, she's brought into this honor because she is redeemed by Boaz. She's brought into this this family and this nation. This is our story. We have have no rights. We have no, no nothing. We kind of tag along the the coattails of Judaism into this, this tale of salvation and redemption, and we are brought into the family. We have nothing to offer. We have nothing, we have, we have no rights there. We just said, I want to be part of this. I see what's happening. I want to be part of this. Paul retells this in a few sentences. So, you know, bear with me. We've talked about trials and inheritance, all this stuff. It's, it's important, and, and here's, here's why. It has to do with the law. Paul says this in Galatians. He kind of summarizes this the story for us in our context. He says, oh, there we go. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Okay, here's why all of this legal stuff is, is important. Because Boaz is telling this guy, don't just go by the letter of the law. Take care of the land. Go by the moral requirement of the law. Go above and beyond the letter of the law to take care of Naomi and Ruth. The law always deals with uh, with checklists. Do this, 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 make sure you don't do that. It always deals with checklists and bare minimums if you are going by the law. So God gave his people this the, these stone tablets. He gave them the set of instructions. They wrote it all down. And you can take it and say, do this, do this, do this, don't do that. And this paper, this this system becomes your God. And you say, I will do this, I will do that, I will do that, I won't do that and this becomes your God, and you have a bare minimum. Is this enough for me to be called holy? Is this enough for me to belong in the family of God and be called a child of God? This is the way of the letter of the law. It's kind of like this. We have a lot of teachers in our midst, so uh, and a lot of students, so we can relate like this. 70 is enough for passing, right? What do I have to do to get a 70? That's your... That's your checklist, all right? This is your bare minimum. 
What do I have to do to pass? And then you might even raise that bar a little bit, but you still set that goal. You still set a new checklist. Well, how much more would I have to do to get an 80? How much more would I have to do to get a 90? How much more would I have to do to get a perfect score? And God is saying, this is not a system of of to-dos and not to-dos. This is not a checklist of how to be holy. This law, this is a reflection of my heart. It's not meant to be a bare minimum. So God's system is not pass-fail. It's all or nothing. Okay? It's not pass-fail. It's not what do I have to do. It's all or nothing. It's perfect or not. This is the, the struggle of the law because Christ didn't do bare minimum to restore us. Christ didn't do bare minimum to redeem us. And that's what Boaz was asking this guy. He's saying, look, you can do the bare minimum to get this property, but there's much more to it. And he's standing in front of his neighbors, his friends, people he knew, and he's saying, be a bigger man than the bare minimum. Do what this family needs you to do. And the guy says, I can't. I can't. Jesus redeems us to restore us fully. In the words of John, in Jesus' words, in the Gospel of John, he says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Not the bare minimum of life. Not what do I need to survive. Abundant life. See, Israel had had this problem of people promising them a future, of people promising them um, holiness. Here's what you have to do. I don't even need to do this for you. You can do it yourself if you would just bop, 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 bop. And Jesus condemns these people called Pharisees and teachers of the law. He says, you lay these people with these incredibly heavy burdens, but you don't do a thing to help them lift it. You just bury them under these requirements. And it's too much. Jesus says, I want to give you life to the full. I won't just pick up enough. I won't just help you enough to bear this burden. I will take it from you completely. So here we are rejected by the world, having been turned out by these thief, false teachers who promise everything and instead just take. We've been rejected by everything the world would have to offer to save us. And we've been received and redeemed and restored by Jesus. When we receive our neighbors when we, in turn, receive our neighbors as we have been received, we reveal the glory and the story of Jesus. Now the question becomes, what does it mean to receive your neighbor the way that Jesus received us? What what does that even mean to receive someone? Last week we talked about bearing others' burdens to reflect Jesus, but receiving somebody means receiving all of them, not just their burdens. Okay, Jesus did not just receive our burdens, he received all of us. Our brokenness, every single ounce, every, every hiding spot in our identity, in our soul, that we would have to, to hide away pains, that we would have to put shame, 
that we would have to just keep the, the slightest little bit of, this is just for me. Every little spot, every little nook and cranny within us, Jesus takes it all on himself. And instead, he gives us his righteousness. He receives all of us, and he restores us. Now, that is not something we can do for each other. We cannot take all of that. We cannot redeem all of that. So what does it mean then to receive somebody like Jesus as if we can't do that? Two things. When we receive our neighbor, we recognize their redemption and we reflect their restoration. We recognize their redemption and we reflect their restoration. So it's like this. Boaz took Ruth and Naomi's tragedy as his own and then he reversed that tragedy. So they were in widowhood. And he brought marriage back into this family. Ruth was a widow. He married her. They were hungry, and he gave them provision. They were uh, homeless, and they, he gave them redemption. They were barren, and he gave her parenthood. In fact, it says, we assume she was barren because she had been married um, for 10 years before she, met, before she became a widow, and she never had a child. But it says God opened her womb. He gave her conception in this new relationship with Boaz, and where she had been rejected by the community that she had moved to, and she had been rejected by this self-focused redeemer. She was now received by Boaz in this community through him. And that's key. She had been received by the community after being received by Boaz. In fact, they started praising her. They started connecting her with the matriarchs of Israel, Rachel and Leah, a Moabite woman. She wasn't even from Israel. She was an enemy. And they said, may you be blessed like, like Rachel and Leah, the, the mothers of Israel. May you be like them. This, this reception that they gave her, and then her being like seven sons to Naomi, this reception that they gave her was in light of the, res the restoration that Boaz had given her. Because of what he had done, the people praised him. They praised Naomi. This is what happens in Christ. We can't redeem our neighbor like that. We can't restore our neighbor like that. But we recognize the reversal that he has given. We recognize their redemption. We don't categorize people in, in class or ethnicity or generation or whatever other classifications we want to put people into. And we say, well, they're less than or they're greater than. The redemption that Christ gave makes us universal. It equalizes us. The cross becomes level ground for all of his people. And once we recognize that reversal that Jesus gave, we we reflect that restoration. We reflect the restoration that he has given. We become the people in the crowd praising him for the restoration that he gives to our neighbors. We become the people in the crowd praising Jesus for what we see him doing. And we reflect that reversal of tragedy. The way that Boaz had turned these lives around, we reflect that tangibly when we give to people when we serve people, when we are present with people and say you are, um, you are worth 
my time and my energy and my presence. In fact, I'm lucky to be sharing that with you. Right? I'm the lucky one. We paint living, present depictions of what Christ has done. Not just in the way that we treat our neighbor, but in recognizing and sharing what Christ has done for our neighbor and for us. Matthew 5, verse 14. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We recognize redemption. We reflect restoration. And every witness to the work of Christ gives glory and praise to God. Would you please uh, pray with me? Father, we're here this morning to recognize everything that Christ has done for us, everything that you are and have done. We echo the Apostles' Creed for that purpose. We sing praises for that purpose. We read your ancient word for that purpose, just to know you, to recognize everything that you have done. Father, we ask you now to give us the privilege and honor of reflecting that to the world around us, that everything that you have done for us, we would be that in the lives of of our family members, of our coworkers, of our friends, of our neighbors, of the organic contacts we meet in the store, traffic, and everything else, that we would be a living picture everywhere we go of the kind of God you are. So Lord, keep this on our minds. Throughout this week, help us meditate on this. What kind of God is our Lord? What kind of person am I? What does it mean that I've been received by Christ? What would it mean to receive my neighbor in his name? God, this is something that only you can illuminate in us, and this is something only you can build into our lives. So I ask you to be present, powerful with us, not just this morning, but day after day, minute after minute, moment after moment, so that we can give you glory, so that those around us can give you glory because of what you work in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.